Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hi, I'm Chris Cottonor, executive producer of Deep State Radio. I'm excited to announce that beginning on Monday, October 25th, we will be introducing additional benefits for our members. On Mondays and Thursdays, our podcasts will continue to run for about 45 minutes, but the final 15 minutes of each show will only be available to our members. On Wednesdays and Fridays, members will receive exclusive written content from our host, David Rothkoff. As always, members will receive access to our exclusive Slack community, ad-free listening via private member feed, free access to live virtual webinars, and transcripts of each episode. To become a member, visit bit.ly slash DSR member. That's bit.ly slash DSR member. For a limited time, use code October Launch, all one word, and receive 10% off the regular price of $6.99 per month. Thank you and enjoy the episode. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to a special edition of the podcast. We are joined today by Congressman Ro Khanna, California. How are you today, Congressman? Doing well. Thanks for having me back on. Very glad to have you back on. You're one of our favorite Congress people. Also, because it's Thursday, of course, Dr. Kavita Patel of the Brookings Institution, formerly of the Obama White House. How are you today, Kavita? All very excited to have the Congressman and you, of course, Steve, and Thank Greg. You. And Greg, too. Greg gets a lot uh, of love. The too. Congressman and Greg. And as Kavita indicated, also our friend Greg Sargent of the Washington Post. How are you today, Greg? Good, thank you. Well, that's pretty good. You know, because, you know, sometimes you're not so good when you come on. You're not feeling optimistic. So this is. This I, is I read Greg's columns to find out what's going on in D.C. Where's Manchin? Where's Cinema? Where, you know. <laughs> me, me, too. So let me ask you a couple of quick questions, Congressman, and then we'll turn to Greg and Kavita. Two things. One, the House, just as you know, we're recording this on a late on Thursday afternoon, House just passed contempt, I guess, re- what resolution regarding Steve Bannon, and I guess it'll be referred to DOJ. How do you feel about that? And do you think it will have consequences? I do. I mean, I feel when Congress calls you to testify, you should show up to testify. Let me give you an example. I, in our committee, we have the CEOs of Big Oil, Exxon, Chevron, BP, Shell, all coming to testify. They didn't want to show up. But when they found out that there may even be a threat of further action, they showed up. That's usually what people do. And to defy Congress is to defy the American people. It's to say, I have no sense of accountability to our democracy. So I'm glad that we're taking action to preserve the people's right to understand information. And I'm glad that there's finally going to be some consequence to, to defying a congressional subpoena. Uh, well, thanks to that. We may follow up on that in a little bit. But the other big question of the day, 
on the big issue of this week and the past few weeks has to do with progress towards the Build Back Better package, the reconciliation package. And it's been a bit of a cliffhanger. And every, I don't know, Greg Sargent writes a column every 20 minutes or so about this, it seems to me. But many of them have had me rather depressed. And I've talked to people in the administration, and I can't say they were super optimistic earlier in the week. And yet, today, Speaker Pelosi seemed quite confident. And recently, we've at least seen some reports that perhaps there is some acknowledgement by Senator Cinema that, you know, we're going to have to raise some taxes to pay for it, which seems small concession, but realistic. What do you think? What, what do you think about where we are? I emerged very optimistic after Tuesday, after we had a, I think it was Tuesday, uh, early in the week, where we had a two-hour meeting with the president, 10, of, 10 progressives, and then he met later with 10 moderates. And what made, I think, many of us optimistic is how engaged he was. I mean, he's literally sitting there with a chart, a line item, knowing each dollar figure uh, and saying he's absolutely committed and he needs this deal before going to uh, overseas and we've got to get it done. And I think many of us felt, okay, if the president's disengaged, he's going to be able to get it done. Progressives indicated a willingness to compromise. I mean, as you know, the number is going to be below 3.5 trillion, significantly below. And people said, okay, we have to do what we have to do. We have to get the principles in there. But it, it all depends on him being able to convince Manchin and Cinema as a first instance on even the compromise framework. And it seems like that is still an ongoing challenge. Yeah, I have to say, I, you know, in my view, there was a lot of talk at the beginning in the media about you know, how much everybody had to worry about the progressives being tough. And the progressives have been the voices of reason in this. And the so-called moderates have been the obstacles. At least that's my view. But Greg, do you have a question? I'd like to follow up on what you just said, actually, David. Uh, Congressman, I I noticed you on CNN the other morning and many other progressives have been remarkably conciliatory in, in a lot of your public statements. It seems like it seems I've like, heard about it from the left. Trust me. <laughs> I, I'm sure you did. And, and this is one thing I want to ask about. It seems to me that there's been a real decision, and I think a good one among progressives, to make it clear in every conceivable way in public that the door is open to a deal. And I'd like I'd really love it if you could take us inside the thinking there. Like, does that is there a sense that that somehow opens up a path for mansion and cinema to get to the table, to a framework? Is, is, is there a sense that that makes it easier for them? What's the, what's the strategic thinking there? Well, the strategic thinking one is not to have hard red lines, where if you put a red line out there, it becomes harder to then walk it back and basically calcifying opinion in a way that makes it very difficult to get something done. And there's a sense, at least among many of us progressives, that these are policies that many people have been talking about for decades. For decades, we've been saying every Western democracy has universal preschool. I mean, in France, everyone from three years old gets to go to Ecole, the, their schools, and they're actually very good. By the time you're in first grade, there's actually a fair amount of uh, equality in terms of their ability to, to enter school on an equal footing. We've been saying we need paid family leave. We've been saying other democracies have childcare. We need childcare. So we finally have a framework that sort of is adopting the progressive theory of the case. 
And to reject that uh, because we didn't get it enough or funded enough is just not something that we want to do. I mean, it's sort of like we finally broken through. We have a president who's making it sound reasonable. We don't want to be the impediments to the deal, not just sort of optically. It's not just that we don't want to get painted as obstructions. We don't want this deal to fail. I mean, if this deal fails, it may be the best chance in a long time to to move towards the type of society that we want. You look at my Twitter feed, you'll see there, there are people who disagree with that strategy. I mean, it's not a universal strategy on the left, but I think many uh, progressives would agree. The idea that this this has opened the door to the progressive theory of the case kind of reigning is really fascinating. Is there a sense that just getting your foot in that door opens up major possibilities down the line? There is. I mean, I think the bill establishes a couple key principles. It says. We as a, a state, we believe that you need to invest in, in children in this country, in their education, in their health, in helping families raise them. I mean, that is a, a big, big philosophical shift in the role of what a liberal democracy should provide. It says, we believe you should expand Medicare, that Medicare currently is not adequate in its role for healthcare. That's a big philosophical shift. I mean, the entire premise of Sanders' campaign, the one of the big premises was, let's expand Medicare. So our belief is once you get those principles established, and we believe these policies will be popular, that it becomes easier to build a progressive society with positive rights in, in addition to negative rights. That's why we're very pleased overall with where we're going. The one place that's still contentious is climate, and, and we can get into that. Well, we should get into that. Kavita? Yeah, Congressman, I want to just ask, our kind of dialogue is something that is incredible fodder in D.C., but outside of Washington, D.C., where supermarket shelves are empty, probably in your district, and people are kind of feeling what I think is the real pressure, both on the economy, but also I would argue kind of not to you, but I think all of us can appreciate that regular people probably don't even understand what's at stake in this package. How it, it does feel like somehow around cinema, there will be a deal it will get some versions of what we have kind of been talking about. But then where where do you see as a Democrat and a leader and someone who has been very proud to, I think, be a progressive, how you actually get people to understand what it took to get this package, how it can, and it's not about the votes, but it is about the votes and at least expanding people's knowledge because it feels like all the polling and probably you in your own district People don't get it. They, they don't understand why this is such a difficult issue. And they're all they're hearing is one point nine trillion or three trillion because that's what the media covers. And they're not hearing about the program. So do you see kind of selling this a little bit as part of the job of the entire Democratic caucus, to be honest? I do. And I'm of the minority opinion that I don't blame the media. It's not the job of the media to make a sale and you don't dictate how the media covers things. I think we have to be better in how you talk about it. I mean, my father was, he, he didn't like one of my TV appearances. He, and so I got a call. He said, it's uh, usually, I mean, they like some, but he said, you know, it's like if you go buy a car and the salesperson there is telling you first, here's how much it's going to cost. Here's how much it's going to cost as opposed to telling you what's in the car. And so we need to do a better job first being very simple about what are the things we're, that American people are going to get. They're going to get 300 bucks a month for every kid. They're going to get Every three-year-old is going to get to go to preschool. They're not going to have to spend more than 7% of their income on childcare instead of having to spend 20 to 25%. You know, seniors are going to get dental cover. They're going to get their eyeglasses covered. They're going to get hearing aids. 
And we have to we pick four or five of these things and really hammer them home. The other thing I've suggested, I suggest actually directly to the president, is we ought to talk about the spending is uh, less than 2% increase of GDP. Billions and trillions are big numbers. They scare people. Instead, we should say, look, this is actually a very small investment. We're a very rich country. For a very small investment, we can actually give people a better shot. So I think that the way we talk about things needs to improve in our messaging, and uh, then it'll break through. Yeah, I think, you know, that's an issue. And I'd like to come back to that a little bit, because how we talk about it, how we talk about whatever gets passed, I think is really important. But before we get to that, I want to pick up on something that that Greg said, because I think there is, you know, again, we, we don't have to blame the media, but there's an untold story in this. The president came out with a very bold vision that derived from a lot of progressive visions. And regardless of the debate in Washington and, you know, the couple of people, 96 percent of Democrats on the Hill support it. And 70 plus percent of Americans support each of the items. And, you know, there is this kind of presentation that, well, you know, there's an extreme left and there's an extreme right or moderates are in the middle. But in this particular case, moderates aren't in the middle. Progressives represent the majority. The progressive agenda is a majority supported by lots of independents, by about a third of Republicans on issue after issue of all those things you listed. And to me, I perceive not only, you know, is there kind of a philosophical case to be made is that you were, you were just talking about, we're seeing a shift in American politics and that what once was considered the left, which is to say government should play a role and help people and invest in people, is increasingly considered the majority view. Do you see that shift as well? Do you think something bigger is happening here? I do. And you know who, who also saw the political shift, even though he combined it, unfortunately, with racism and xenophobia, was Donald Trump. I mean, he rejected the idea that you should cut Social Security, rejected the idea that you should cut Medicare, even though they kept putting those budgets. He said he understood that you needed big stimulus checks, and that was good politics. Now, he was disingenuous. I mean, they gave all the tax cuts to the rich, and they he didn't deliver on what he was campaigning on. But he understood that people in this country at this point, across the spectrum, Democrats, independents, Republicans, don't want the extraordinary wealth inequality and want the working class and middle class to have a shot. If you poll things and you say, I want to give every American universal preschool, and then you poll it, you know, 65% or so, I'm just making this number up. Then you say, I want to give every American universal preschool and I want to tax the ultra rich to do that. It goes up to 75%. So populism is something that I think can attract a broad, broad coalition. Now, the question is, is it going to be nihilistic populism that Donald Trump represents, combined with xenophobia, combined with isolationism, combined with cultural exclusion? Or is it going to be aspirational populism? And I think that you could, with aspirational populism, actually have a very broad governing majority coalition. If I can make one other quick point, why does Biden get this and not a lot of a number of other senators and House members? I would argue because Biden ran in 2020 and a lot of these other members had to run in 1980 and 1990 and they're still caught up in the elections they won. Biden had to face the contemporary electorate and so he saw it firsthand. And so he's moved in a way that Congress hasn't. 
And that, I think, explains some of the disjuncture in our politics. True, although to some extent, Biden has moved and the country has moved back to the view that prevailed in the country in 1942 when Biden was born. There, there's a role to play for government. Hello, Deep State listeners. We're working hard to bring you additional programming, and we'd like for you to help shape it by completing our survey. Those who complete the survey will be entered to win one of three guest appearances on a future episode of Deep State Radio. To complete the survey, please visit bit.ly slash dsrsurvey2021. That's bit.ly slash dsrsurvey2021. Now back to the show. It seems to me that, that the myth of the pragmatic centrist has been really kind of broken here. And as a question for, for you, Congressman, another thing that I've noticed about progressive messaging on this, which I thought was really interesting, was that pretty early on, or maybe midway through the process, maybe a couple months ago, many of you started to say, you started to describe the reconciliation bill as President Biden's agenda. And I thought that was really important because it essentially pushed back hard on the idea that the reconciliation measure was the left's agenda. And by calling it President Biden's agenda, it seems like you guys were trying to move the public discussion in exactly the direction you're talking about here. And I wondered if you could sort of explain how that kind of came to be and and what the thinking was. Thank you for picking up on that. That was a very deliberate and intentional decision. First, it's grounded in truth, right? I mean, I was a co-chair of Bernie Sanders' campaign. Sanders' agenda was free public college, universal Medicare for all, a $15 wage for giving student loans. So it was much beyond what the the president's uh, proposal was. When the president says he wrote this entire bill, it's accurate. He ran on this, and this is actually his agenda. So as a starting matter, it was descriptively accurate. The second thing is one of the things that the president has an enormous talent for and ability to do is to make things sound reasonable and relatable and not make them sound too much change too fast, right? I mean, he can go back and there's a reason he goes back to Scranton, Pennsylvania and invokes how it was life when, like when he was growing up. So when the Republicans say they want to take your way of life away, they want to change your way of life, which is like every other speech that McCarthy gives on the floor, Biden says, no, no, what I'm doing is to give, a little, as he calls it, a little more breathing room for people like my dad and my mom. And so what he is, has the ability to do is to mainstream progressive policy. You know, and I think that that's a, a great talent and a, a great asset to, to progressives. And we saw that his heart is in these policies and he has, he's a great communicator for these policies with independents, with certain working class voters. And let's use that asset. A great point. And I was not a Bernie supporter. I was a Warren supporter. But uh, I have to say, the Democratic Party owes him an enormous debt of gratitude. And the Democratic Party feared him and some vilified him for a while. But he zeroed in on on a lot of truths long before other people did. Kavita? So I'm going to shift to my favorite topic related to economic recovery, COVID. I think it was with great interest that I saw that Bolsonaro in Brazil by his own Senate and, you know, kind of higher courts 
held accountable for his performance, lack thereof, in effectively murdering people. And you, you saw that that was, I think, something contentious where they backed off on the murder charge. But I'm still left to wonder, as we're still seeing kind of evidence coming out of January 6th, and, and I know that there's no accountability for Donald Trump and his murder in the pandemic. How can we make sure you're on the Armed Services Committee, there's a higher rate of suicides. The Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin has said that this to him is like the pandemic. Can you talk about, hopefully this package will give us economic recovery. What is the recovery for kind of our public look? I've been looking as a doctor for accountability. I've wanted to see Trump held accountable. Hopefully that can work for January 6th. But how do we then move forward as a country? And then thinking about um, some of these sectors, feels like labor shortage. We've been lucky on inflation, or I should say, it feels like inflation hikes have not been as much of an economic threat, potentially could be. Where do we go, kind of forward us through one, two, three years? And especially with your interest in armed, with your role in armed services, I'd be curious about that. Okay, that's a very deep question. The time where I thought the, the, the world and the nation would be much better if all women ran it was in the initial stages <laughs> of the pandemic, when I thought, I still remember it was like March, and we were talking to my staff and team, and I said, oh, we'll be getting past this in a few months. This is, you mm-hmm. know, when people that think, and my wife is like, what are you guys thinking about in terms of if schools don't open? <laughs> and I was, people were like, what are you, crazy? But school, schools are going to open. And throughout it all, she is, you know, was right in terms of the severity. And the reason that I mentioned that is because one of the things she's been pushing on is mental health and the impact that the pandemic has had on mental health, which we, we don't even have a clue in how we're going to, to deal with that, both with children, with people who have been isolated. And so we really need massive investment and planning uh, with doctors and others on the mental health and well-being of uh, of our society. Uh, we also need, I think, uh, accountability and sense, sense of uh, uh, almost a truth and reconciliation commission on what people did during COVID. I go on Fox News because I think, okay, it's better to, to spar and, and, and get my ideas out. But I was horrified when I was on Maria's show on, on Sunday Business, not by anything she said, but she had Governor Abbott on. And Governor mm-hmm. Abbott, fine, whatever, he's going off on the border. That's sort of there. Now I've come to expect expect that from them. But then he goes on and he says, you know, I really want to just let people know that there are, I've heard these stories of horrible side effects of the vaccines, and I've heard people being hospitalized with the vaccines. And, you know, it's just, we aren't telling enough of these stories. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, he's vaccinated. He would never Mm -hmm. say that to his family members. He would never say that to his close friends, but he's basically going out and lying to people in a way that's going to lead to unfortunately people being hospitalized and even dying. And there has to be some almost truth and reconciliation commission in this country on COVID and people's responsibility for that rhetoric. Is there appetite for it? It feels like there isn't. We can talk about it, but do you think there will be a... I, I do. I, I think the president, understandably, and, and his team and Ron Clayton are, are so appropriately focused on let's solve the issue, let's get people vaccinated, let's yeah. figure right. out how to deal with the pandemic, that the accountability piece is probably not top of mind. But I think once we're past this, there definitely will be a call for that in in Congress and I I think support for that in the administration. You know, I look at all of 
what's happening right now. And I see the infrastructure package, the Build Back Better. But I also see them as, as having a consequence, and that is increasing the chances that Democrats can win next year in 2022. And I see that in turn as being especially important if we are to defend democracy in the United States. But the question is, will we be able to take whatever is achieved and turn it into a message that, first of all, unifies Democrats and then mobilizes Americans? And I'm just going to read you something quickly. I like all of us, we have friends in different places. I have friends in, in, in the administration. And, you know, I, I was just exchanging with one of them today, my sense that it looks like we're closer to a deal. And the response I got was, yes, we are. But here's the thing. Even after we pass it, the narrative on our side will be that there are no voting rights, incomes are too low, no equal rights amendment, the climate is still a crisis, the border is inhumane, and more. Now, it's not just that we need to have sort of discipline. We need to have a recognition that the ultimate overarching issue is winning to preserve democracy and that some of these things are going to be frustrations and that we have to sort of find a way to say, let's look at the good news. $1.9 trillion for a rescue package maybe one trillion for infrastructure, another two trillion or so for Build Back Better. That's $5 trillion, 200 million people vaccinated, 80% of people over 12 vaccinated, 5 million jobs created. There's a lot of good news, but you wouldn't know it to turn on the television or even to hear some Democrats talk about it. Can we get past that? That's a Profound point. And let me be, if you permit me, a little bit digressive and then get to your point. As a son of immigrants, I still believe that this is the greatest country in the world. And I tell you why I say that, because I was on a panel with Jeb Bush in New York. And they asked me, that's a Bloomberg study that had us 11th in innovation. I said, give me a break. I mean, my district, Silicon Valley, produced $11 trillion of wealth. It's the most wealth generation in human history. There's not a line of people getting ready to go to China or Brazil. And there's still a line of people who want to come to America. I think sometimes we forget the good parts of America, the fact that we're going to become the first, in my view, truly multiracial, multi-ethnic society in human history. It's never been done. The fact that we still have a lot of openness in our political system, despite a lot of the corruption and, and issues. We have to be more aspirational as a party. We have to be more aspirational. When I said I still believe America is an expert country, you know, Bush kind of gave me a fist bump. But that frame, if we're aspirational and then we say, okay, now how do we make America even better? How do we make America fairer? I think the message will come through better. In that broad frame, once we pass this, we need to all go out and celebrate what we've done. You know, we don't have to be like Republicans and call it the greatest thing ever, but we should talk about how this is great legislation for working families, how it makes an extraordinary difference. That, that doesn't mean that you settle and say, okay, everything is, our work is done, but we have to talk about it positively. And if we just emphasize all the negativity, that will get in the way of people realizing how this has impacted their lives. So I still believe that the best politicians, the 
Obama, uh, Clinton, and I don't share older ideology, but the, the John F. Kennedy, FDR, Lincoln, they have an aspirational view of uh, the nation and society. And we have to couch our, the policies we want in patriotism, in growth, in opportunity, uh, in language that can appeal to the people to, to win elections. And because I think that's true. What you just said is, it reminds me of a debate that occurred during the Obama 2012 campaign, during which they were a little reluctant to lean into their success story in turning around the economic crisis because they worried it would alienate voters who were still struggling. And it always seemed like, uh, at least in retrospect anyway, it looks like it was something of a mistake. And I wonder if that will be concertedly avoided this time. It seems like this would be the, definitely the time to do that, because right now you've got a Republican Party, which is just veering into extreme radicalization on so many fronts. There must be some sort of way to, to say both an aspirational message along the lines of Democrats are making this country better and making it live up to what it's supposed to be, and Republicans are crazy and are going to try to tear it all down. Is there some way of kind of managing those two, two narratives? Yes, we're... We are the patriotic party. We are the party that believes in the Constitution. We are the party that believes in the rule of law. We are the party that believes in the promise of America. That is our party. Theirs is a party that rejects the fundamental constitutional principles on which we were founded. Our message doesn't have to be that we want to transform America. It's that we want to fulfill America, that we want to do what America is supposed to be, and that we recognize all the great things about America. You know, it's not a coincidence, in my view, that so many of our leaders are in their later 70s, 80s, I think in a time of extraordinary change in this country. Think about it. Before 1965, 90% of immigrants in this country were European. My parents came in 65 after the Immigration Reform Act. Today, it's less than 10% European. We have had extraordinary demographic change. We have extraordinary economic change. By 2025, 25 million jobs, digital jobs, more than manufacturing and construction combined. We have all of this change and people are hearkening for some stability. I think that's, it's partly why actually I think Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden's votes overlapped and ended up as the top two vote getters in the, in the primary. And so the question is, if we understand that, how can we be the party that actually is for America's founding promise? And you look at the great leaders of King or Lincoln, they didn't speak of transformative new. They said, we want to redeem what America is. And I think that's the possibility with Biden. Biden is saying, I want to do this what growing up in Scranton was. These are the policies that are going to help families like me. We are all American. We are the America that you grew up with. So I, I think that's the opportunity. And I think we have to be positive on what we've achieved and, 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 and sell that, recognizing, of course, there are still things that we need to do and that that's a co continual process. But I don't, I, I think it would be a total mistake not to celebrate the accomplishments and a total mistake not to celebrate America. It seems so obvious. It's sort of like if you signed up to be the coach of the 49ers, you don't want to root for the 49ers. Uh, now, you could go become a radio host, or you could go become a journalist, you could do a lot of things. And, but when you sign up to run for elective office, doesn't mean that it's the greater callings. Being a social activist is a much greater achievement than being a politician. But when you sign up to represent the United States, there's got to be a basic sense that you really want to, you love the, the, the team you're, you're fighting for. And I think, I think it comes out at the best with Biden at times. I thought it came out when he was talking about 
growing up and with his family. It's great. Came out with Obama in spades and did some of his best speeches. So I think that's important. Very briefly, you've tweeted, I believe, about your uh, hate of the filibuster, particularly when we're talking about an overdependency on Senate Republicans. It feels like we're being held hostage by two Senate Democrats, by the way. But talk about kind of as voting rights kind of building on just very briefly what David had talked about with what's at stake, even if we get past this package. Talk about what the future is for trying to seriously end the filibuster. Someone on the House side who probably could get a lot of people excited about that. Is there any way that this debacle over voting rights, the vote, the Senate Republicans blocking the bill to expand the the right today, can that translate anywhere into seeing a light to at least carve out things for the filibuster? If, If I can interject, I've talked to a bunch of people. They don't think voting rights is going to pass. They don't think filibuster reform is going to pass. They are in a position to know it's not going to happen. Will that blow up the Democratic Party? Because it's going to be so frustrating to so many people. Well, first, I think we ought to be talking about the filibuster as contrary to American constitutional principles and unpatriotic, as Adam Gentleson's book shows. I mean, Madison and Jefferson (laughs) didn't dream this stuff up. They were much more rational in their outlook. This was dreamt up by people who literally have been opposed to African-Americans having political and civil rights. And so we ought to be very clear about what this is, that it's not some grand American tradition uh, going back to our founding. The second is, I do think there is a chance, now this may be wishful thinking of my place, but that after the White House gets its economic agenda, you know, right now they need mansion and cinema, they can't, they can't rock the boat. But after they get the agenda, that they will mobilize with greater urgency, clarity, forcefulness on getting rid of the bird rule, getting rid of the filibuster, at least when it comes to voting rights. And I think they, my guess is that they probably hoped that we would have already done this, these packages and that they could have been there right now and it's dragged out. But I, I believe the focus of voting rights is going to be there uh, as soon as the economic packages are done. And, and I think you're going to see a very forceful appeal uh, from the president, the vice president and others, at least that's my hope on these issues that the base of the party will realize that this is not lip service, that we're really fighting it. And maybe we succeed, maybe we convince folks to have the exception. And if not, the 2020 election becomes a referendum on that. But they will see the fight from the Democratic Party on it. I know this isn't fair to Kavita, but she's here every week. Greg, you're a professional question asker and interpreter. So I'll give you the last question. Okay, well, this is a bit of a a slightly off-topic question, but I've been curious about it for a long time. It feels to me that the focus on cinema and mansion uh, has really kind of distorted the public debate about the makeup of the Democratic Caucus. And I'd love to hear from from you on what you think are the makings of the moderates in the Democratic Caucus. My, My sense is that there's actually a really large, a very large block of highly sensible and pragmatic moderates who are prepared to be there for something very big at the end of the day. And because Josh Gottheimer and his band of, you know, merry saboteurs kind of uh, hijacked the debate, thanks to a few reporters, it has distorted that. And I'd love to really get a clearer understanding of, of who these House moderates really are. Wouldn't they be there? Won't they be there for something big and enthusiastically so? Yes, and I have a lot of admiration for for them. People like Abigail Spanberger, she was joking with me one day. She said, 
I thought I was a progressive till I came to Congress. You know what our biggest priorities are? Climate. Our biggest priorities are voting rights. Our biggest priorities are infrastructure. So I, I think some of the, the the coverage has been unfair, frankly, to the moderates. A lot there are a lot of moderates who want legislation on the climate crisis, who understand that the climate crisis is existential, who want voting rights, who are fine with the three point five trillion and want those investments. And you really have a couple holdouts, but that's not the modern wing. The, the, the House caucus is much more unified. And frankly, I have an admiration for people like Abigail Spamberger, who by and large are running on these bold ideas and are able to convince people uh, in their constituencies that that's something that's good. The final point I will make is this. In politics, the obligation is on the politician to make the sale. You can't come back and, and start criticizing, oh, why don't they get it in West Virginia or why don't they get it this you can you have to convince people. You have to make the case. You don't you you have to say, look, these new jobs are actually going to be there for your kids. These are good policies. I think instead of sort of having a, a moral condescension on someone who may not have your view as a moderator in a different thing, think about how you're going to sell them. Think about how you're going to bring them on board. Think about how you're going to expand the coalition. I never compromise my principles. I'm unequivocally for Medicare for all, for free public college, for a $15 wage, for a wealth tax. But I don't think that somehow that makes me morally better than someone representing another district. I think we have to fight for our convictions, make the case, and make the sale to the American public. And I think if you take that attitude, a lot of the tension, quote unquote, between moderates and progressives will, will not be a start. That's a great place to conclude. Congressman, as always, great to have you. Hope you'll come back soon. Greg, absolutely the same. Kavita, of course, the same. We'll see you again next week, Kavita. But uh, uh, for the rest of you out there, please join us again for each and every episode. Go to the dsrnetwork.com to find out more. Uh, if you like what we're doing, click on membership, help support what we're doing. And we'll continue this discussion in many ways in the days and weeks to come. In the meantime, everybody, take care of yourselves. Bye-bye.